0: Dear Heavenly Father, we we acknowledge that Your Word um, says that not all things are good, that there's evil in our world, there's sin in our world, our world is broken and messed up. Um, We've experienced that firsthand in the brokenness of our own hearts. We've seen it in every corner of our globe, every community, every country. We see the effects and the curse of sin all around us. And Your Word says that this is our introduction into your good world as we've introduced the curse. And so, Father, why not all things are good, we do acknowledge that you are good and that you work all things together for the good of those that love you and are called according to your purposes. And so, God, we thank you for being so beautiful and so sovereign and so strong that you can work everything from hurricanes to civil wars um, to, to um, atrocities You can work those things together for your glory and for the good and advancement of your kingdom. God, no one's as wise as you. No one's as knowledgeable or as powerful as you. And so we stand here acknowledging the only one who can bring good out of garbage that we see around us. And so, Father, you're the master creator, and um, we just submit to you today. As we come to your word all over again, Father, we pray that you would teach us um, to live the kingdom Mind to live the kingdom now and to be agents of that kingdom, ambassadors of that kingdom locally in all the places that you're going to send us. And so, Father, um, come be the teacher. We want to be a church like the one at Thessalonica. And so, God, don't leave us um, to be anything less than what you've called us to be. And so, convict us of sin today. Stir in us repentance and build us up by your Holy Spirit. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said. Amen. Amen. It's a house of prayer, y'all, isn't it? Come on, man. It's appropriate. If we're not a people who pray, then are we really his people? All right. So we've been looking and last week we reviewed um, talking about how the gospel came um, to the church at Thessalonica. And we gave sort of a bird's-eye view, a flyover of how the Holy Spirit dropped like a beet in Jerusalem, and that fire spread and caused the church to dance the gospel into the ends of the earth. And within a couple decades after the resurrection of Jesus, you have the gospel leaving the Middle East in Israel and already being planted in Europe. And so we kind of trace that movement through the book of Acts, if you weren't here We're trying to record the sermon to make that stuff accessible to you. So if you um, want some more of that information as we go through this book, if there's a week that you miss or you're serving in nursery or something like that, we're trying to get that digitally so that you can have that for your small group. And what we're doing here is we're going to preach straight through chapter by chapter, a book of the Bible, and then house churches are going to meet in Mesa Meadows and Forest Lakes and different places. And that's where they're going to chop it up and go verse by verse. It's going to be a place you can ask questions, invite lost friends, People can hear the gospel, and you can go deeper into what we're discussing this morning. Everybody okay with that? All right? And so that stuff's going to be available to you. So we talked about the the gospel comes, and it spreads, right? And we started talking about how it was spreading, and it kind of looked like a Bill Belichick offensive coordinator, just arrows of people going everywhere, which didn't go real well for Bill Belichick last week, but... But just the offense. It was just all offense. Just people going places with the gospel and they're traveling along these Roman roads and they're giving people access that they didn't formerly have to the gospel. And it just... um, This is for the young people, so if you're a little older, forgive me. It looked like the maps that they always have on the movies of zombie apocalypses. You know, where it starts locally and then like two days later, every country's infected. Right? That's what early Christianity looked like. Within the first years of maybe having 300,000 believers to within the first 300 years of having large significant multi-million large percentages of the Roman Empire had submitted to the gospel. All over the world, different languages, different people. It looked like absolute craziness how the gospel spread. And so we traced that and we took as a As In Acts chapter 17, it talks about how the gospel came particular to Thessalonica, which we're going to study here in a minute, and we wanted to give what happened before Thessalonica, what happened after, and so we said on the second missionary journey of Paul, he comes to a town called Philippi, and at this town of Philippi, it just goes real bad, and it just goes real good. It's a mixed bag, really. They get stripped naked, right, for the gospel, which I don't think anyone here has ever had that happen, uh, that I know of. Uh, Email us if I'm offending you. Um, So they strip naked. They're beat with sticks publicly, right? Crowds yell at them. So if you thought middle school was bad, right? And people yelling at them and just attacking them. And actually they're thrown into a prison that people in Durango wouldn't even put their dogs in. And the prison was actually an upgrade from the beating they were receiving publicly, and as they prayed and sang, right, jailers get saved and start asking questions, what must I do to be saved through a turn of events? And even as uh, I was, I, I just so thank the band. You guys, can, if we get some love to just the people that serve in music up here. Um, <laughs> like, I love, one, I love just the heart of service, love Karen, and, and that attitude and all the things. But like, how powerful is this for us to put the scripture and the gospel at the forefront of what we do musically here? And that, that message was so clear that these people actually, when, when it, when it kind of goes crazy inside the jailhouse, they ask Paul, what must I do to be saved? That's how clear and gospel-centric we want our music to be, don't we? Amen. We want Jesus to be so at the forefront that if something happens, they're like, what must I do to be saved? And so people get saved, Paul gets beat, and we said, as he leaves Philippi, which, by the way, he's going to write a book called Philippians about joy, which makes no sense to us as Americans, right? When I get beat, or even I get inconvenienced, joy is not my first adjective, right? But for them, the afflictions they suffered identified them with Christ in such a way that as they got their backs beat, joy stirred up in their hearts, amen? And we said that as they go on round two of this mission trip, that they limp into Thessalonica, don't they? For many of us, don't we hit the pause button, time out? Right? We just got our butt kicked in Philippi. I'm not sure we want to go to Thessalonica. They limp there. And like for me, if um, I have one physical ailment that is bothering me, like you realize a hangnail, you could get a splinter, you can roll your ankle. Do you realize how bad my attitude becomes at some minor amount of pain? Come on married folk, help me. Your spouse gets some minor injury and they're milking it, right? Hey. Come on now. And doesn't your at don't you struggle with your attitude? We see how mature in Christ you are at that moment, right? And some of us have a lot of pain. Some of us have a lot of difficulty. And we see that they just didn't let pain become their God. They didn't let the crowds become their God and tell them what to do. God told them what to do. God directed them. God empowered them. God moved them. And so they come into Thessalonica, and we talked about they went to the synagogues. He preaches for three Sabbaths. Right? The city of Thessalonica had a large enough Jewish community that it had that and we just said all he needed was a foot in the door. And for us, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, with places that God has called us to bring the gospel, it's like we don't need, you know, a 17 year long mission trip with clear literature and all this stuff. We just need a foot in the door and a heart that's willing to share the gospel. And he had a foot in the door and he got in where he fit in. Y'all hear me? Some of y'all are going to share the gospel on ski slopes because you know how to do that. Others of you should not go to the ski slopes because you don't know what you're doing there. And people will be praying for you. You will not be praying for them. (laughs) Right? Some of you are outdoors. Some of you know how to cook. Some of you are interested in this. Some of you don't know something. And because you're ignorant, it's going to allow you to come around lost people who could teach you how to cook or how to snow ski. And that's going to be your foot in the door to share the gospel of what you do know. And that's Jesus. You're like, wait a minute. I don't know all this evangelism stuff. Shouldn't I take 15 classes? Well, tell me, do you know the gospel? Do you know Jesus? Start there. That's a pretty decent spot, right? And so he gets a foot in the door in this town of Thessaloniki. We talked about, to this day, the city still exists, by the way. Next to Athens, it's the second most important city um, in Greece, right? And it was, it's, it's really old. It was built around some hot springs called Thermae in ancient times. But in around 50 B.C., Alexander the Great takes over the world, and one of his lady commanders marries his half-sister and names the city after her. Her name's Thessalonica, right? So we said, gentlemen, if a holiday's coming up and you really want to woo her, nothing like giving her a city, y'all, right? Sweeps her smooth off her feet. Um... I don't know any place I can name Whitney, but it's crossed my mind. All right? So he comes to the city. This city was on the Via Ignacia. So it's on this major highway. I mean, it's no Highway 501, but you get the idea, right? It connects the East, Eastern Roman Empire to the Western Roman Empire. And here's what happens. The, the normal routes at which humans travel, namely roads, waterways, the gospel is going to come to Thessalonica, and because it's a port city, all these drunken sailors who are worshiping false gods are going to get saved and they're going to take the gospel on boats because that's how people travel. And people that get saved that they use horses or mules or packs, they're going to take the gospel down to Via Ignacia, and they're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and it's going to ring forth everywhere. We're going to get into that. But this is a strategic city. This is a city. I've actually been to this city. You can look across the waterway and on a clear day you can see Mount Olympus. The center of Greek worship, Mount Olympus, right? The mountain of the gods. And Jesus is like, we're going to take down that whole mountain and all of its little little games, right? And we're going to get it in the city. We're going to plant the gospel in the city of Thessalonica, and Mount Olympus will lose all of its power over these people, okay? So this is Thessalonica, and as the gospel comes there, uh, one of the things that we said is Paul wasn't there long. I mean, we know from the scripture he was there for three Sabbaths. If you do sort of the timeline of his second missionary journey, we don't have exact dates of when he was where. He gets beat there. The church is planted. And he gets so beat and ran out of town that he's maybe not there for three months, six months, year and a half at the longest. But he leaves such quality disciples behind that that church is going to be the model of all churches In the ancient world can you do that can you disciple someone three months year and a half in such a way that if your butt was kicked out of town they would still continue to worship jesus make disciples and plant more churches because that's the that's what happened here against all odds this little church and it's funny because once it gets kicked out it goes to berea and he actually, the scripture's gonna say Berea is more noble than those people at Thessalonica. It's like maybe they got more degrees, maybe they're more educated. They're searching the scriptures more. Thessalonica is just that blue collar, not the fanciest church you got, but it's solid. Don't you wanna be a part of that kind of church? And so in a year and a half, he's there. He leaves, goes to Athens, goes to Corinth. Paul's really hard to nail down. That dude is moving and planting churches, sharing the gospel, making disciples. And he goes there and he leaves, and he, his heart is broken for his people. And I get this right now because we just got back from doing church planning in France, and I message my guys, some guys I disciple there all the time, and I wonder, I was like, man, are you doing good? Is your walk with Jesus healthy? Are you making disciples? How's the church? How's things going? So I get this heart. It's like where you love a people so much that you want to check back on them. And so Paul gets further down the missionary journey and he says, I got to know how my people are doing. Are they, survive- are they still there? Have they been drugged into some heresy where they've become just like the culture? Right? Have they stopped sharing the gospel? Have they stopped making disciples? You know what I mean? Are, are they theologically sound? Are they spiritually healthy? He's got to know. So what does he do? He takes his disciple, Timothy, and sends Timothy there to get a report of how the church is going. Timothy comes back, and we'll see this later in the book, and gives this report about them. It prompted Paul to write the letter of 1 Thessalonians. In response to the report, he gets about this church. And here's kind of a summary, if I can give this as we jump into this. Here's the report. The church of Thessalonica is solid. It's a good church. Amen? Some of you don't believe good churches are possible. We talked about this. That for many of us, we come from so much baggage or church fights or splits or all this drama. People, so-called Christians, maybe getting in leadership authority. People doing this. Fights, splits. That for us, it's really easy for us to believe in bad churches. Right? Corinthians, right? Okay, so it's we've got lots of Corinthian experience, right? But some of us have yet to be in a part of a First Thessalonians church. We want to know this is a good church. Listen, God's people, good churches are possible. If we take nothing else from this morning, if we can believe that God's grace and the Holy Spirit and his power can come in such a way, we can actually be a good church that plants churches, makes disciples, and spreads the gospel all over the world. Do y'all believe that? That's why we're coming at this, is we want to be a good church. And so we need to see that it's even possible. We also need to be warned that bad churches are also possible. Amen? And so, I want to I get into this. What is a good church? All right. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, or Silas. Sylvanus Ro- is the Roman version of Silas, which is a Hebrew name. His original name was probably Saul. And Timothy, to the church of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Let's stop for a second. What is this? This is an introduction, right? But this is actually the salutation that we put at the end of our emails. Okay? And in French, they have these like five long paragraphs of like, in America, we just say sincerely, right? Colby, right? We sign our name or, you know, something God bless you, you know, the Christian people. And then Colby, right? Okay, so that we put that at the end of the letter. And I'm going to argue that makes no sense whatsoever. Do you realize that we write, hello? Like if you write a letter, you write, hello, Steve. And then you write the letter. And then at the end of the letter, Steve's like, who wrote this? Oh, you know what I mean? James wrote this, right? They put that up front, which makes so much more sense. It's like, hey, church at Thessalonica, it's me, Paul. We know who's writing this. So they put their ending at the front and it seems intelligent, all right? So this is, a, this is the salutation at the end and I want there's some particular things here that it's crazy loaded, okay? Let's look at it first. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, okay? First thing is, Paul is the leader of this missionary journey. It's his second missionary journey after the split with Barnabas over John Mark. He brings in Silas who will later do mission work with Peter, and actually helped Peter in the authoring of Scripture, so Silas, we could do a whole character study on him. And Timothy, a guy that Paul discipled. Paul's bringing disciples on the mission trip. Here's a point that I want to say for our house churches, for our church philosophy. Good leaders bring other people along with them. And bad leaders hog all the responsibility. And so what we see here is that it's not just Paul... But Paul has other Christians that he's bringing into the harvest, right? Do you bring other people into the ministry with you? Or are you a lone gun in whatever you're trying to do for Jesus out there? Because we've been trying to argue here at this church, this making disciple thing is a tribal thing. It's us working together to make disciples, amen? And we see here in the scripture, Paul is not alone, but he's bringing other people along with him, and he's even bringing one disciple. So here's what I'm saying. As we look at some of these house churches, will your house church have people that can plant other house churches in a year, in six months? Are you giving other people responsibility and opportunities to serve? Or are you so hogging the ministry that everybody else depends on you and it's become like everything revolves around you, it actually doesn't revolve around Jesus? Another thing that I think that this makes me see in Paul as he gives Timothy the task of getting the report, is that Paul will come and say, as I send Timothy, I send myself, right? And he does, just doesn't give Timothy a task, he gives Timothy responsibility. See, so there's a difference between giving people tasks and giving people ownership and responsibility. And we talked about that last week. All right, next point. To the church of the Thessalonians... This could be Americans. This could be Kenyans, right? This could be, that's a culture there that exists. Of, if you want to circle of in your Bible, I think this is meaning something here. It means people who are Thessalonians culturally, amen? In, what does that preposition do in there? What does it mean to be in God? The Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the Trinity at work here because the Holy Spirit is authoring this book. The Father and the Son are being exalted. Lord Jesus Christ. Lord is his divinity. Jesus, Yeshua, salvation, it's his his, um, humanity. And Christos, Christ, is his mission. You see both his humanity, divinity, and his mission in Lord Jesus Christ. It's his proper title. It's not his name. Like Christ is not Jesus' last name. Everybody okay with that? So we see this and he says... You are Thessalonians. You are from Colorado. But you are in God. You are of God. He puts these two things next to each other. Doesn't he? Do you see it here? So here's what I would say about this. All of us are from a culture. Nobody in this room was born in a vacuum and does not have a culture. Right? If you are wearing cowboy boots today, right, which I got mocked by Ronnie Posey for, all right, if you're wearing cowboy boots today, you are coming from a culture, right, if you are wearing your baseball cap backwards, there's probably old men in here judging you, but if you are wearing that thing backwards, you are coming from a culture, amen, if you speak English, right, if you speak Spanish, those are cultural parameters for you. Listen, if you listen to yodeling, you're the only one, all right? But that's your thing. The Bible is going to assume that these people live in a culture. If you, and I think in our context, if you have a skin color, right? I believe there's one human race. But the idea is like, if you come from a culture that values work ethic, if you come from a culture that values skateboarding or sports, right? There is something about being American, America, right? Whatever that is, it's a culture. And I would argue this, it's superficial. It's it's not the deepest version of you if you're in Christ today. I think he's coming at their identity and he's saying many of us think we're awesome because we're from Oklahoma. That's true. (laughs) And the amount of pride, come on now, that we kick up, that Because we're from Colorado. Um, have you heard a Colorado person say the word native yet? <laughs> Versus all these people who moved in for questionable motivation. <laughs> there is such a thing as a cultural identity. And for some of us, we get a pride. We get a sense of this is the way that we do this. Um, let me just stop for a second. As someone that's worked in a multicultural church, a lot of people don't realize that there is such a thing as white cultural church like do things organized, we handle the money this way, do so; Those are white cultural church traditions. There are traditions and there's culture that come with that. So here's the deal. Being an American or being a Thessalonian or being a Kenyan, even though probably if you're Kenyan, you can run fast. No judgment, that's probably just true. All right? So like that's there, that's cultural. That's just not you at the deepest level. Think of how profound your language is to you and like how you think about things he's going to say you're in God being in God is 10 million times 10 million times more significant for who you are as a person that the grace of God has come in you and transformed you to hate sin and to love the savior and to 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 cherish the word to pray for your enemies to love those who persecute you, that the gospel has come into you and redefined who you is. That's bad English. Forgive me. It's redefined. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Your deepest identity is not that you work at this place or you're in the military. It's not that you're from Oklahoma, as beautiful a place as that is. It's just not... It's in the beauty and the splendor and the supremacy of Christ or you don't know him. And that other junk is idolatry. See, I think that both of these things exist and we need to understand them in their proper place. First and foremost, most importantly, you're in God. But that also means, listen, cowboys, all right, If, 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 if you are ranch cowboy or you just cheer for the Dallas Cowboys, that's close enough, That's a cultural thing, and God has come because you're in God. You're going to redeem that and maybe share the gospel with other lost cowboy fans. All right? Listen, you may be a Colorado person who is like growing your own vegetables because that's what you do, right? And that secondary thing now becomes a platform. That that cultural thing that is true for who you are, that is not sinful, becomes a way for you to express that you're in God but you're also a Thessalonian. Does this make sense? Yes. One identity in God leads to you engaging your culture. And I think we're going to see that in how they engage their culture with the gospel in the next few verses. All right, it's a lot on introduction. Last one, grace to you and peace. The word in Greek, "kyrene" sounds crazy like charis. And so what Christians did was, especially with the Gentiles, the Gentiles in Greek would greet each other with "kyrene." It would be like saying, bonjour, or hello, or what's up, or Heidi, or hello, or uh, howdy. Heidi's not a greeting. Howdy. Um, And they would greet each other with Kyrene, And Christians took this as Gentile Christians and started greeting each other with grace. Right? They started saying grace to you. And Christians would respond, and also with you. Grace became a greeting for the early church. At the same time, you had these Jewish Christians who are ethnically Jewish, culturally Jewish, but are now saved by the gospel, trust in Jesus and are saved, their greeting is shalom, which means peace. So this shalom word doesn't just mean peace like the 60s, you know, all the hippies that moved here. It's not that peace. That's not what we're talking about. I'm not talking about the symbol, peace. We're talking about, in the Bible, this shalom was wholeness and completeness that comes from a right relationship with God. That was shalom. You want to know what peace is? Having a right relationship with God that extends, that relationship flows peace and completeness and wholeness and harmony into all other aspects of your life. That's the idea of shalom. And so what Christians began to do as these two cultures, the Greek Gentile Christian culture and the Hebrew Christian culture, culture they started to say grace and peace. And they always put grace first. Look at it. I mean, you see this title all the time. They're going to put grace before peace. And the understanding is that until you get the grace of God in Christ Jesus, you're never going to have shalom. That until you get grace, you are hacking at temporary happiness. You'll never have shalom. You'll never have peace. And so he said, grace always comes before peace. Today, Christian, do you have a wholeness and a power and a completeness in God because God's grace is at work with you. What an introduction. I don't write emails like this. Just saying. <laughs> Verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you. That's hard to believe because even in every church, there's always one or two you you'd be like, I don't know if I'm really thankful for that person. Anyways, for all of you, Paul, this must be a killer church. All right. Constantly, con- constantly, for me, I know my prayer life has not always been a prayer life that could use the word constantly. Amen? Can we be, I know this is church, but can we be honest? That sometimes we've faltered with consistently praying for people, even people we love and care about. And the maturity that we see in Paul is like an opportunity to constantly be, be bathing people in prayer. Um, mentioning you in our prayers... Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. In There's that preposition again. So I think he's paralleling his introduction. Our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a couple things I want to say for this. These people follow Jesus in such a way that when other Christians think about them, other Christians praise and thank God. Let me say this, do you follow Jesus in such a way, with such zeal and such passion, with such love and such kindness and such gentleness, with such wisdom and such clarity, and I'm talking two-year-old Christians here, right? We're not talking about super saints walking with him for a couple decades, we're talking two-year-old Christians, but when the Apostle Paul looks at these two-year-old Christians, He cannot stop himself from spilling forth praise and adoration to God for how they act, how they live, how they preach, how they walk, y'all. Does anybody worship God like that because of you? Are you doing community and life deep enough for people even to see you like that? Because here's the thing. The gospel comes to these pagan Thessalonians and a few Jews mixed in there and their transformation is going to be so total and so radical that the remembrance of these people triggers them. It triggers them to pray. Amen? It triggers people to to want to follow Jesus better, y'all. Okay, let's take it off of you. Do you know anybody like this? Um. I have a a mentor, and uh, all my mentors are older than me by decades. And um, he's a sound architect uh, for um, megachurches and banks and stuff. He's just a genius when it comes to sound and all these things. And um, he's actually, feel free to pray for him. His his name's David Anderson. He's been going through um, just a battle uh, with cancer. Probably one of the singular most important men in my story. And honestly, when I think about this guy, I can't help but thank God for what he's taught me. I I am the least humble person I know, but if there's any ounce of humility in me, it's God that has taught that through a David Anderson. Do you hear me? I can think on David Anderson and instantly want to follow Jesus more. Even as he goes and battles cancer, There's so much strength and so much grace, so much worship peeling out of his heart. If you called him right now, he'd share the gospel with you. He'd overflow life into you, even as he's getting his butt kicked. You know what I'm saying? And this is a brother, this is a brother that in our college ministry, at 60 years old, came among 20, 21, 18-year-old males and started attending the college ministry with them, started buying them breakfast, started praying with them, started just fathering them, and acted like he was their peer. That makes no sense to me. He would sit down with a Christian that had been a Christian for one year, a 19-year-old kid that had been a Christian a year, and he would have that Christian sharing what they're learning in the Bible, and he would listen to that one-year-old, nine, one-year-old Christian, 19 years old in life, as a 60-year-old man, and listen like Jesus himself was teaching the text. I just don't get that. It made me so fascinated with him and I just realized he had a teachableness on him that I wanted. That I didn't understand. He had a maturity in Christ that I I, I had yet to learn. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when I think about teachableness or I I think about patience or I think about humility, man, God has taught me through David Anderson. He triggers me to pray. He triggers me to long for more of Jesus. I also have other brothers that do this... uh, you know, people that you laugh before you even tell the story. Um, we had a young kid come in our college ministry. He's about 19 years old. And he was running an underground boxing club on our campus and cooking hallucinogenic mushrooms in his closet because he's a college kid. And he wore a trench coat and wrote for the anarchist and was an atheist. And, and uh, his brother got radically saved through a college ministry. His brother shared the gospel with him and he pummeled his brother. Just beat his brother. And uh, walking one day after hearing the gospel, the Lord just lightning strike gets a hold of his heart. This dude gets saved, and to this day is one of the wildest Christians I've ever known. We've been sitting at tacos in a restaurant. Holy Spirit just coming him. He'll walk over to another table, sit down with him and be like, listen, people, Jesus. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know what I mean? Like, like creep me out stuff. He packed one pair of clothes and lived in the Amazon for three weeks and as planted churches, and share the gospel. He's ten times more wild than me at sharing the gospel, and I discipled him. And you know what that makes me want to do? It makes me want to share the gospel more. When I think about his freedom to talk to anybody, anywhere, anytime, I'm just not that way, and so I pray, and I think of him, and God uses that to make me more free to have conversations I wouldn't have otherwise does your lifestyle lead other people to want more of Jesus and want to be more like Him? It says it right here, it triggered them. It says your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Here's the deal. This is the trinity of Christian virtue. You know, work, from faith, hope, love. Right? So here's the thing. This work is not from religion. And I think it's so silly how many fake Buddhists in Colorado I run into who say Buddhism isn't a religion, and I just come at you, I say, then you've obviously never read it because there's a sevenfold pathway and you need to do these things in order to achieve nothingness, which I find incredibly dehumanizing. Buddhism comes to make you less human. Jesus comes through the gospel to restore and resurrect to make you fully human. I think Jesus is better than Buddhism. I mean, I know I'm a preacher, but let me just say that's, that's true. Right? And if you go into Buddhism, as I've seen in India, and I've walked with some of them people, those works that they're doing are not from love, and they're not from unmerited favor and grace. It's them trying to earn their way. And if you think they're any less pharisaical than the Christian who's trying to earn their way apart from grace, you're wrong. You think there ain't no Buddhist Pharisees? Or atheist Pharisees? Come on now. Muslim Pharisees? See, the thing is, there's work, but it's from love. That's a different source. Do you get what I'm saying? That the gospel has come in there and they're working, but it's not by their own power. It's not, therefore, for their own glory. It's for God's glory. And so it allows them to remove an element of selfishness from their work. Come on now. We are not a works-based church. We're grace, y'all. But we know grace produces the best kinds of work because it doesn't poison you. You can serve God without it killing you, without it poisoning your soul. You get what I'm saying? And it says labor of love. You know, when when you serve in this church or when you serve your family, would people feel like it's love or obligation? Because people know, right? When you're serving just because it's your job versus when you serve because you love somebody you love a family, you love a culture, you love this church. It's a big difference. Last one, I, I steadfastness of hope. I, I want to say this real quick. It's like, in France, um, I don't think I knew much about hope. I'll just be honest with you. Like, I know it's one of the Christian virtues. I know it's in the text. I just hadn't had much experience. It's, it's incredible because kids, in their school, there's a thing called la cité. It's state-sponsored agnosticism. That is... You are not allowed to wear a cross t-shirt. To, you could wear a Guns N' Roses shirt to school, but you can't wear a cross t-shirt. Yeah. Like crosses, anything religious or outlawed, but you can wear a Led Zeppelin shirt. Makes no sense to me. Both seem like religions, but whatever. So kids grow up from four years old, state-sponsored, you can't talk about God, you can't pray in school, you can't do any of this sort of stuff. So the kids grow up with an incredible lack of sense of meaning, and purpose, and identity. They don't, and and to be, I love French people. I mean, hear my heart. Like, I love, but they're religiously uh, retarded. They just, they're, they're ignorant. They cannot have basic religious conversations because their government and their system has forced them to never have those kind of talks. At best, they can kind of talk philosophy, but that's as much as they go. And so because of that, nobody on the world consumes more antidepressants than French people. There is a sense of depression over that culture and a sense of loss of purpose, purposeness, Purposelessness? Whatever you say that. Loss of purpose that just, is, it just eats at them. There's just a depression. The other thing is they consume, statistics would say they consume mad amounts of wine. All right? That's not surprising. It's like a Colorado person that drinks beer from the Rockies, right? It's just local. They just consume tons. So if you look at these two statistics, you realize huge portions of the population are self-medicating with antidepressants and alcohol together. And so I have never, I, maybe I've seen it, but it, I didn't know it, but when the gospel came to French people, secular people, who grew up pagans and godless, and not, they couldn't spell God, right? And the gospel comes in their heart and hope happens, you ain't never seen something blossom that's more beautiful than a French person with hope. They look peculiar to the rest of French society because they're not always negative or critical or depressed or bitter. They're full of hope. He's going to argue here that the hope that these Christians have is in Jesus and in what Jesus is going to do in the second coming to make all things right. Have you ever let hope blossom in you like that and conquer your, your cynicism? I've seen it happen to French people. Um... I don't think it's beyond God to do it to some Americans either. Y'all hear me? Let's keep going. Steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not ambiguous, precious moments hope. It's in Jesus. All right? There is no hope that's sustainable outside of Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Oh my God, here we go. All right? Chosen you. It's in the text, y'all. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Okay, stop right here. So we could talk about the sovereignty of God and the election of God, both words that are in the Bible. We can read Ephesians 1, Romans 8, 9, about how he draws those that he calls, he elects. We could talk about this. But I think the purpose of this text is to say that those that are chosen by God that while we have a choice in this thing, God also has a choice. And the scripture, again and again, is going to put God's choice as supreme and ours as reactionary. Okay? And He's going to say that you are, if you are chosen, you're loved by God. The love by God and the chosenness are together, right? And this is in a, a, a love and an expression exclusively for His children that have believed in Jesus. Here's what's going to happen the reason I'm going to say that. Because the gospel came to you not only in word. I think the point here is not so much to get in a theological debate about the sovereignty of God. Other books of the Bible are going to do that, okay? We can go there. But I think he's going to talk about that chosenness and people that have experienced the love of God will always have power that comes from that relationship. Do you hear me? Look in the text. Also in power and in the Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as a person that is loved by God and chosen by God that has not received the Holy Spirit. And with full conviction. And he's, he's differentiating this from people who it, the gospel just comes to them in the word. You mean to tell you what I'm talking about? I'm talking about people who are Christians in name only. It is not difficult to say that the gospel came to you and to click a status on Facebook. That's the gospel coming to you in word only you hear what I'm saying? It is not difficult for anybody to say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm in open adultery against my wife, but I'm also a Christian. Anybody can say they're a Christian, amen? But what he's going to say is, you'll see who the chosen are by the Holy Spirit at work in them, right? At the full conviction inside them. Let me say this. There is no such thing as a Christian who's received the gospel and their conviction about sin hasn't changed. It says full conviction here. Uh, I mean, back up a little bit and, and not saying that this doesn't develop as you ingest the word and you learn and you grow. You learn what sin is. You learn what truth is. But here's what I know. The gospel comes and changes your affections for those things. When I got saved and I started walking with the Lord... Do you realize one of the problems I had was that Jesus messed up sinning for me. Before I sinned, and it wasn't like it was no, it wasn't even a beep on the radar. Now I'm doing things, and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I broke God's heart. This is a weird, like, what is going, like, I did and I couldn't describe it because I'm a baby Christian, but there's stuff going on in my chest, and I'm like, what in the mess did I just do? Anybody? How about this? Church was super dumb before you got saved. Oh, we can't be that honest. Church was not the coolest thing ever when you got saved. But you know what? You got saved, and all of a sudden you had this full conviction, and the Holy Spirit inside of you leapt when you sang about the blood of the Lamb. And you realize, like, two years before you got saved, the blood of the Lamb, you're like, what in the mess are we singing, right? Right? And then like two years after you get saved, you hear about the gospel. Jesus, the Lamb of God, sacrificed for your sin. And you see your sins. Galatians 2.20, nailed upon the cross. And don't you feel different about your sin? Don't you feel different about community? Right? Don't you feel? Isn't there new? There's new things alive in you. John Owen, great theologian he talks about the twofold process of when the gospel comes in believers that's at work called mortification and vivification. Mortification is like mortician. It's putting to death the things in you that need to die. And listen, that's happening in every Christian right now until the day that you're no longer with us. Christ is putting to death stuff in you. Now listen, Christ may have given a death blow to your pride. You may be wrestling that thing for a minute. Y'all hear me? But Christ is putting that thing to death. Do you realize that right now, God is in full-on assault after your sin because he loves you so much? To put that stuff in the grave, the old yous passed away. Do you realize also, vivification, that Christ is bringing things to life in you that didn't previously exist? A love for his presence in prayer, Right? A steadfastness and an attitude of kindness that wouldn't exist in you because you're maybe rude all the time. Right? A humility that's just not from your personality. And Christ is bringing that alive in you. Now you may be stiff-arming that and slow in that process, but listen, it's happening for every Christian in here. The Holy Spirit is arranging circumstances from your workplace to your home to everything to bring new things alive in you and to put old things to death. Your chosenness comes with full conviction. Those that have been loved by God receive the Holy Spirit, and this transformation has been kicked off, y'all. And this is just, it's just different than anybody who could claim the name of Jesus in word only. I'm gonna say something controversial, so brace yourself, big boy pants. Everybody ready? Um, I had a conversation this week, and I think it was, a, it, was a, it was an honest question and a loving, and they were like, what do I do with? I know someone who claims to be gay and also claims to be Christian, can there be such a thing as a gay Christian? And I said, no. I said, in the same breath, though, I want to say, I have friends that are homosexual or have come out of that lifestyle and different things like that. I said, but I also don't believe in NASCAR Christians either. Oh, it didn't set in, did it? That wasn't funny. Uh, I just don't believe... The moment that you start to add other words to Christian... What the mess are you doing? I mean, I could throw NASCAR up there, and if you're saying my identity is in NASCAR just as much as it is in Christ, I'd argue from the scriptures, I don't think you're a Christian. Now, you'll give an account to God. You're not giving an account to me you're not a part of this church, right? Like, if NASCAR defines you and shows you who you are, tells you how to live, and it's your God... Yeah, that's a problem throwing that up there with Christ. But see, here in our culture, we want to say, well, we can, th- but, but gay is something else. No, that's telling them how to live, what they can do, what they can't do, and attitudes and those sorts of things. So here's my deal. It's like, I can love people that are sinners. And listen, I'm not bashing on homosexuality and that sort of stuff. I'm an equal opportunist. I think we should, I think we should bash on all sin and cheerlead all of the things about Jesus. I think we should cheer on the good and, but be honest about the bad. And I'm saying if this thing right here, and I don't care if it's sports, food, adultery, sexuality, you take anything and put it up with the gospel, I got problems with that. Because the gospel reserves a right to tell us who we are unlike anything else. Your sexuality is not bigger than the gospel. Your cultural background, NASCAR, is not bigger than the gospel. Do you hear what I'm saying? Their chosenness comes with full conviction, not just words. Anybody can get on and say I'm a Christian and throw words around and and condone sin and and say this is the right, this is the thing. But at the end of the day, real Christians are going to have a conviction about these things and that conviction is going to look like the word. You know what I mean? Or at least moving that direction. doesn't mean we're there yet, but we're definitely going more towards the word, not away from it. Regardless of what culture thinks. Everybody okay with that? Big heavy stuff. All right, let's keep going. You know what kind of men we proved among you for your sake. Proven leadership here. So we're not talking TBN taking you for your money, right? Nope. Too close to home. All right. Let me just say this. A part of their mark of their election and the fact that they follow Jesus is that they also follow quality leadership. And let me be honest here for this church. If at any time our church abandons the gospel and abandons sound doctrine, you are obligated in our church covenant, to go somewhere else. Do you hear me? It is not about any set form of leadership or sacredness of these walls. It's about the gospel and it's about the doctrinal truths. Right? So it says here that true Christians are following quality, proven leadership. That is, he came there and it wasn't about money. It was about their souls. Do you hear me? For your sake, I want you to know right now that your elders pray for your sake. They have crazy long meetings that are like three hours long. We miss football. We get away from our families, skip stuff with our kids for your sake. You have elders in this church that love you. Do you hear me? And I, I would argue, I, I've been so impressed. I didn't know these guys before I came here. I've been so blessed to see their heart for this church, their love for you guys, their prayer for you. Sometimes how they handle some of you hard-headed people. Right. I've just been so impressed. And honestly, I've had way more fun with them than I expected. Right? Um, right. They may look a few decades older than me, but internally... Uh, no, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Imitators of us and the Lord. For whatever reason, I, I just do not run into Christians who are comfortable with this. Right? Follow me as I follow the Lord is what Paul says, right? But if you ask a Christian, you know, are you getting people to follow you as you follow the Lord? You're like, oh, I couldn't presume to do that. Well, what do we do with this verse? You hear what I'm saying? If there is no element to your walk with Jesus that is followable, that actually helps other people find Jesus, we got to talk about the health of your walk. Do you hear me? They, he was comfortable saying this. This is not saying that Paul's perfect. It's just that Paul, in his imperfections is going to repent. Which is, by the way, what you're supposed to do, right? And that even the disciples seeing him fail and repent will be good for teaching the disciples that when they fail, they should repent. See, I find that oftentimes Christians don't want people to imitate them because they're trying to put up a front of perfection yeah. instead of a front of authenticity. Just be authentically Jesus's. When you follow Jesus and you do righteousness by the grace of God, it's by the grace of God, give Him glory. It's not about you. And when you fail, that is you. Repent of that by the grace of God and then keep following Jesus, y'all. But here's the thing. We are not as a church going to make disciples if nobody can follow nobody. Do You hear what I'm saying? Some of you have went through trials and fire. Some of you have learned... And, and studied Scripture, and we just need to learn from you. We need you to open up and let us imitate what good things God has put inside you. Amen or Ome. Oh and it says that they imitated the Lord. Now I'm going to come back to that, but he, he this is still thing here. For you received the word in much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Caia. Oh, sorry, verse 7, I skipped one. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Craziness. This church has become an example to Europe. They imitated Paul and Jesus such that other churches from other countries could imitate them, and that's not a bad thing. you see what he's saying here in this discipleship thing? He's saying, you followed me as I followed the Lord, and now there's churches in Macedonia and Achaia. I don't know how to say that. I think it's like the berry. Achaia berry that's covered in chocolate. I don't know. Achaia, Macedonia and Achaia, and they followed them as they followed Paul and Jesus, and that is an incredibly healthy, necessary thing. We need those kind of models to follow, don't we? And it says that they took the word in much affliction. Doesn't that kind of ring a bell about Philippi? Anybody? That the, the church at Philippi received the word in affliction? Right? Does it remind you of Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross? What does this do for you? He's saying even in Jerusalem where they're killing leaders and stoning Stephen... That church in Jerusalem is looking at Thessalonica saying, family. Look at him saying, legit family, cousins, brothers, sisters. That's Christian family. Can the church in China experiencing persecution look at the way that this church handles affliction and say, family? Can countries in East Africa where they show up at Sunday school and Muslim terrorists throw grenades into their Sunday school rooms filled with little kids, right? Because that happened when we were there. Can that church look at how we're endeavoring to take the gospel places and how newspapers or jerks at work or different, or family members blasting us on social media for being Christians? listen. Like, can they look at us and say family? Because this is what's happening. They received the word in affliction, and it made churches that had received the word in affliction say, that's our kind of stuff. Can we, let me say it like this. If, can new Mexicans, which sounds interesting to say, can new Mexicans imitate this church and be better for it? Yes. Can we plant churches in China... Or in India, and they imitate the faith of our people here, and that be a beautiful, awesome, healthy, godly thing. Or, or are we a church that we shouldn't be taking some of our problems other places? You hear what I'm saying? It says here that they're a healthy church, and that the way they received the word resonated with other churches in the area. I just love that. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. I just don't think affliction does that for other people. The quote by uh, that famous atheist Nietzsche is that that which does not kill you makes you stronger. And I think there's a point to that. That that which, I don't think it's true all the time, but that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I think that it can. Like, there's some hard stuff that's come to some of us and we've become tough and we've got leather skin and we're, we're rough, right? I just don't know that that which doesn't kill you doesn't necessarily give you more joy. Only the gospel can make that happen. See, we're being stronger isn't necessarily meaning better. Their affliction causes them a fullness and a depth of joy that I don't think the world will ever have when they experience the same kind of affliction and pain. Let's keep going. For not only is the word the word of the Lord sounded forth, this is the Greek of like a bell ringing, right? It's just echoing throughout the mountains and it's coming forth, rippling throughout Europe. And it says this, Gospel has sounded forth, and it's like an avalanche. Now it's causing an avalanche to just change the world. Sounded forth from you to Macedonia Achaia. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. As a long-winded preacher, I totally get that Paul is going to write. He says, I have nothing more to say about your faith. And then he's going to write five more chapters. Right? If your faith is so legit that Paul says, I cannot say anything to correct you, just just hold on to that for a second. The Apostle Paul is coming to a two-year-old church and saying, this is the only book where he has no correction. Only letter, only epistle he writes where he has no correction for the church. If the Apostle Paul is, if, if your faith is so legit that it caused silence in the Apostle Paul, hold up. You know what I'm saying? He's going to come, but he's going to write and he's going to say, what you're doing that is good, I want more and more of it. And that's what, that's what I think good leaders do, is that they're never content with where the church is at, but they keep wanting the church to grow and to go more and more and have bigger influence, share the gospel more, make more disciples, because they love Jesus and they love the church. You know what I mean? So while he has nothing to correct, he has a whole lot of good stuff that he can stoke and encourage. Listen, I, I know that it's tough because in our culture, I think it's a lot easier to nitpick small things that people do that are wrong than encourage the good things that people are already doing. Amen? I think we can learn from Paul for our marriages and for our kids that when our, when our kids or our marriages or our coworkers or leaders or servants in our church do something good, we can just, we can just cheerlead them, can't we? We can encourage them and say, keep serving like that. God knows somebody needs to give a Hershey bar, a high five to the nursery workers. You know what I'm saying? Like somebody needs to love on our Arwana people, which is basically everybody in the church, all right? You, You hear what I'm saying? Can you come alongside and encourage people to keep doing more and more? Or are you looking for the smallest iota of something to nitpick? For they themselves report Concerning us. So apparently the Thessalonian church talked behind their leadership's back. The kind of reception we had among you. So here's one of the things. One of the things about this good church is the report is the holy good rumor is that they talk good behind their leaders' backs. They don't get in back alleys or corners and talk trash. And this empowers a guy that's already really stretched thin, already really stressed, already out on the mission field? you imagine if Paul is in Athens and he realizes that the church he planted is grumbling and complaining, how that would have cut his legs out from under him? I mean, sometimes we don't think about Christian leadership and how small comments and small gossip that gets back to him can just cut your legs out. And it says that right here, the gossip got back to him, and it was holy gossip. How they talked about how honest Paul was, how good he was, how he taught them so faithfully. And it says the kind of report that came back was how they received him well. And how? I want you to circle that word how if you don't mind. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. I sit on this how because there's a lot of fake Christians And this how is the difference between life and death. I became a Christian because my grandparents were in the church. That's the how. Okay, that's weird. This is why our elders interview people that want to join our church. I'm a Christian because I'm American and I vote a certain way. That's my how. My how is that I just wanted to clean up my life and so I'm cleaning my life up. Come on, you, you act like I haven't heard these things. I was three years old and I was baptized as an infant. That's my how. Right? There's no Jesus. There's no gospel. There's no acknowledgement of sin and repentance of sin. And let me say, there's no Christianity either. Y'all with me? You hear what I'm saying? This how happened to all of us that are saved. This how you know, you know you you know what it is? It's idols to God, and, I, and let me let me talk about idolatry for a minute, because we read idolatry and we're like, "Yo, bro, I ain't got no golden calves in my front yard, just a couple bear statues, and they mean nothing to me," <laughs> right? Like you're like, how are you talking idolatry? Listen, idolatry is anything that you give your affections to, that replaces the true and living God. Listen. This can be yourself, where you are chief among your affections. You love you some you, right? And you dictate what you do. You dictate how you live, where you spend your money. Not Jesus, not the true and living God. So I would say we can look at these other areas and say, you can claim Jesus all day long, but it looks as though in the chief of your affections is these idols. Come on now. We, what we give our affections to, by the way, that's worship what we give our affections to and dictates for us how we live that's your god and i don't care if it's your spouse or your kids that you chase around everywhere the heart is a factory for idols john calvin said we can make an idol out of absolutely anything read the old testament and you think we don't do that today you crazy we can make our politics we can make our car We can make our philosophy, our education. We can make anything. But here's the thing. The gospel has come to Christians. This is their how. Such that it turned them away from these idols, receiving the chiefest of their affections, and turned them to love Jesus such that all of these other things are debased. That when you lifted Jesus up in your affections and in your love, that was formerly sapped by idolatry, Jesus now is your king. That's what the gospel came and did for you. It set him as chief among your love and your affection and your pleasure. That's the how. Any other how is receiving the gospel in word only, not in your heart. And you turn from idols to serve the living God and to wait. I love this serve and wait. The wait here is not so much like waiting in the doctor's office. It's like waiting tables. It's not like your server at a restaurant is just standing around. Well, if they're bad, they are, right? But a, a waiter fills your cup and serves the table. In the same way, we want to be attentive to serving God and waiting for His return from heaven. His Son, whom He raised from the, death, from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I know this is crazy unpopular, but there is wrath from God, extended to His enemies who have chosen sin as their God over Him. That Christians, all humanity stands as enemies of God because we have chosen open rebellion to love sin and to hate the Savior. And Jesus is the expression of God loving His enemies. You know the first one that ever loved His enemies is God. Because we were the enemies that He sent the body and blood of Jesus to absorb the punishment and wrath. He absorbed the hell you deserve. You know what this word wrath means? It's a foreshadow of hell to come. Your hell was absorbed in the body and the blood of the divine Son of God. Or the wrath set still upon you today. That's the two people group, people groups in humanity those who are willing to take the wrath they deserve themselves and the ones who have had a substitute in Jesus who has taken their wrath, who are sinners just like the rest, but they're sinners that have been forgiven because their punishment has been absorbed in the person of Jesus. Y'all hear me? That's the gospel, y'all. Who conquered sin, death, and hell and rose from the grave and is one day returning. So um, I just think it's incredibly appropriate now um, to go into communion. And here's why. Here's why. These elements, um, usually taken regularly by the church, and we're looking at doing this more regularly, is gospel elements. There's two elements here. There's the bread and there's the cup. Um, Traditionally, um, the bread, bread is staple of the poor. Amen? You may have been poor in college, but if you had ramen noodles, you had bread, right? It's a staple of the poor. You know how you get bread? You take grain and you pulverize it. You beat grain. You beat it to death. And then you throw it into a fire and you get bread, right? See, bread is a staple of the poor, but in order to get bread, you got to beat it. you got to crush it. Then you get the other element, which is wine, or Baptist grape juice, sorry. Um, historically, it's been wine, and um, when you, to get wine... What you have to do is you take the grapes, and uh, you got to beat them until they bleed. You got to crush the grape until it until it just drains, and then you you cover it in a tomb of sorts until it ferments, and then and then it's there. Do you realize that both of these elements you have to beat in order to get? It? You have to crush them. They have to receive wrath or they don't become what they are. Jesus said, This is my body broken for you when he took the bread. He said, This is my blood poured out for the new covenant for you. This assumes, and in 1 Corinthians go on, this is only for sinners. This is only for sinners. If you are here today and you have no sin, you do not sin. This is not for you. This is for people that could come and acknowledge, I'm broken. I'm messed up. I'm sinful. I need someone to take the punishment of my sin for me. So if you're here saying there's nothing wrong with you, and, and the scripture would even encourage that if there's something weird between you and somebody else or you've got unrepented sin, that don't come to this table without repenting and acknowledging your sin. If you've got to reconcile with someone, don't come until you've reconciled. He'd say, this is my blood poured out for the new covenant. This is a symbol of my marriage to my people. So this is the second thing I'd say. This is only for Christians. Not Christians plus something else. This is for Christians. People that are in a covenant relationship with God. If you could say that I have believed the gospel and my heart is His and I've turned from idols to the living God... And that's my Jesus, and I'm with him no matter what the culture says, what anybody else says. Communion is for you. So as um, we come, If my heart would be that if today, if we've looked in the scripture, if God stirred your sin, repent of it and believe the gospel. And do so by coming up here. I'm going to pray for us. Um, and then this is going to be a little bit different, so feel free to do whatever you'd like. But this is going to be here, and we're going to invite you to come as a part of the invitation for everyone to come forward and take the elements as you feel led. So if you want to come and get it and sit down and take it by yourself or with your family, or if you want to take it up here, that's fine. Um, Once we've all kind of, all those that want to come have come, uh, we're going to sing our song about the gospel. Doesn't that make sense? And so today, we're going to open this up. You guys come. The invitation is for sinners, and so I think we got a couple in here. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to go. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Chief among our reasons for praise and worship is the gospel Jesus, who gave his body and his blood for us, that we might be saved from the hell and the wrath that we deserve. God, we've all sinned by commission and omission. We've done things. God, we've participated in things. There's nothing but dirty people. But, God, You didn't leave us that way. You made us clean by the blood of Jesus. And so, God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. God, as we come here, give us a sense of wonder and awe over the gospel as we take these elements inside of us. Just as food one day becomes our very cells of our bodies, may your gospel come in us and become our very life such that we wouldn't just be Thessalonians or Coloradians, but, God, we would be in you. Father, thank you so much for this church. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. 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 Would you stand with us?